Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. As Hillary Clinton's candidacy proved, our political system is not governed by the most votes. It's not democratic. You can get the most votes and still lose if you have people who really know how to manipulate the Electoral College, which these people do. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Ann Nelson, an award-winning war correspondent an author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. We had her on the show last year to talk about her book in which she describes a right-wing political coalition that is pulling strings behind the scenes. I brought her back to give us an update on that coalition and how things are progressing in the lead up to the November midterms. Uh, and welcome back to Burn the Boats. Thank you, Ken. Good to be here. A ton has happened since we last spoke, and you probably more than anyone have this incredible insight into the thinking of the power brokers behind the scenes within the Republican Party. I am wondering what you make of these twists and turns in terms of allegiance to Trump and trying to find the heir apparent. How do you think that is playing out amongst the power brokers? Well, as I point out in my book, Shadow Network, Trump is not driving this movement, never has been. They have had a strategy that needed a vector, and that ended up being Trump. And the one thing about this movement, which is coordinated by the Council for National Policy, is that they always have a plan B. And then they usually have a plan C and a plan D as well. They're very agile. I would say, unlike the Democrats. So right now, what I see is that they're hedging their bets. They were pretty much riding the MAGA wave with Trump until very recently. And now they're soft pedaling the Trump part. So for example, I just got a fundraising message from the Republican National Committee. And for the first time, it did not mention Trump in that message. And so the problem that they now face is that in terms of the actual election, DeSantis isn't, doesn't have a lot of name recognition. He's probably the front runner as the alternate. And Mike Pence and Ted Cruz are still in the mix, but they are charismatically challenged. So at this part, when I would say neither party has has a strong candidate for 2024. However, Plan B and Plan C involve taking over state legislatures and invoking the state legislature doctrine, which would allow them to place whoever they wanted, regardless of the popular vote or the or the usual selection of the Electoral College. I'm going to steal your phrase uh, charismatically challenged. Um, I'm wondering if if you can illuminate for us the the balance of power between the, you referred to the MAGA wave, I'm going to lump rank and file uh, base voter Republicans in that group, 
how much power did they hold compared to uh, the CNP and the elites who have been planning this as as you expose in your incredible book for decades? Is this a case of the tail wagging the dog? Who's actually driving the bus on this? Well, I believe that a lot of Trump's base, the hardcore MAGA people who are Trump regardless of anything else, are more the foot soldiers. You know, they're they're the masses who turn up for the rallies. And I think that they account for an important percentage of the vote. But I don't think they're driving the train. I don't see them as having strategists beyond Steve Bannon, who is a master strategist. But I also don't think he is an absolute Trump loyalist. I think that he views the scene opportunistically and would be very capable of switching when he saw it to his advantage. So here now you have the CNP world and a lot of prominent people. Uh, Leonard Leo, who was the Federal Society basically uh, executive officer, uh, just received this $1.6 billion, with a B, dollar infusion of cash from a Chicago businessman named Barside. So he's got that to work with. You've got the Susan B. Anthony people, the anti-abortion people, hard at work in swing states with you know, just uh, millions of voter interactions in terms of personal canvassing and phone calls. And you know, they're, they're like a, a third party in this, the Democrats and the Republicans and the CNP canvassers on top of the Republican. So it's a mistake to look only at the presidential race because there is so much going on in terms of the state level. And if they capture the House of Representatives, then they will really cripple the Biden administration from many kinds of critical legislation moving forward. And they'll also have the ability to to limit uh, voting rights in many places. So the hard part about this moment is, is keeping your eye on all three rings of the circus. Can you share with us a little bit more um, about how those foot soldiers, as you referred to them, are being influenced? I mean, we see the Trump rallies. That is really just the icing on the cake. There has been this long project, and, and you go into the the manipulation of church congregations and other groups of aligning these these interest groups with this political and ultimately economically driven movement. Yeah. And I think that there's a kind of new development because in my book, I write about the role of religious fundamentalists from the South, especially the Southern Baptists, in joining interests with fossil fuel interests in the same region. And Ralph Reed, who's another one of the CNP's master strategists, um, figure out ways to really mobilize the evangelical fundamentalist vote in these states. My belief is that they've done that for so long that they've kind of tapped out that voting block. You know, if, if you're an evangelical and you're going to vote Republican, you're doing it by now. So what I see them doing is initially going for conservative Catholics as, as a block with some success. 
but the real movement is among Pentecostals. And this is a block that Americans don't understand very well because it's not very formally organized. You got mega churches, each one with thousands of people and charismatic pastors, charismatic musicians. One of them is Sean Foigt, who is connected with the Bethel Church in Los Angeles and travels nationally recruiting these people. And what concerns me is that this movement is also becoming a recruiting ground, not just for Republican voters, but also for Oath Keepers and other militia groups. Uh, so you see them at events like like January 6th, but also in these street protests, in incidents involving weapons, so on and so forth, where you have this conflation of Pentecostal Christianity with heavily armed militia groups. And it could well be that the goal is to create enough chaos and conflict leading into the election that it disturbs the electoral process. Culture war issues are what are animating those groups, but those are are really just a a smokescreen for the economically driven motivations of of the groups that you dive into, the CNP and others. Is that fair to say? That's that's how I see it, because these movements could not happen without big money. And for example, the Koch brothers' fortune grew just tremendously between 2000 and 2010. And they'd already failed to run David Koch as a libertarian candidate in the past. So then they started pumping huge amounts of money and creating groups like the Tea Party Patriots, who are one of the activist uh, components of the Council for National Policy. And if you look at the Koch brothers' history, you know, as libertarians, they didn't care about abortion. They wanted no laws governing abortion, prostitution, drug use, you know, any anything else that was a culture issue. They just wanted uh, no taxes and no social programs that were paid for by their taxes. So this this unholy alliance between these major economic interests using evangelicals to really vote against their own interests. You have you have these poor people in southern states voting not to have clean water in their communities, voting to allow air pollution in, you know, for their children to breathe because they're being really indoctrinated by these media systems that are created and linked to their churches. So that's, for me, is the American tragedy. For those who didn't catch our first conversation, can you give us the brief primer on the CNP, when it originated, and what its long-term generational goal uh, is? Yeah, it, it the Council for National Policy was really created by three men who had worked on the Goldwater campaign and were strategists who were very frustrated with the Republican Party. And so they helped to tie evangelicals like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson to the to Reagan's campaign, uh, despite the fact that Jimmy Carter was actually an evangelical Christian and Reagan was not. But it was a power move. And once they helped with the Reagan push, uh, 
1981, they formed the Council for National Policy to profit from that victory. And it joined mostly people from the Southwest, heavily run by people from Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, where there's a a real confluence between evangelical and, and fundamentalist Christians and the fossil fuels industries, just because of geography and culture. And another powerhouse in that mix was the DeVos family from Michigan, who are very conservative Calvinists and also want to eliminate social programs, public schools, the Department of Education, the Environmental Protection Agency. Where they all come together is really wanting to dismantle the federal government and the federal agencies and and programs that benefit the mass population. That's the stated goal in a lot of their literature. So what's very interesting and important about them is that they've had over 40 years of trial and error looking at the various fault lines and defects in our political system, such as the Electoral College, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, such as Senate representation, which is not very democratic, uh, and figuring out how to exploit that to overcome majority rule in the United States. What are the front lines right now? Are there particular state houses that for you exemplify their strategy, say in a state that is either 50-50 or majority democratic, but where their ideology holds sway in the state house? Well, right now, the battle royale is taking place in a very few states. Uh, The Arizona state legislature is going to be incredibly important. And in the last election, uh, it was decided by about a thousand votes, right? And if you have this whole chessboard where our national future can be determined by a few state legislatures, uh, and you look at a thousand votes, it's, it's extraordinary. Another battleground state is Michigan. Another one is Pennsylvania. And you have several factors at play. One is if the Republicans control the state legislature, which they currently do in 30 states, the majority. But the other is if they control the governorship. So the governor has veto power over state legislature uh, bills. And so the, the race for the governor of Pennsylvania is a critical race right now. Um, there are a few others, but those those are really in the spotlight right now. And if I'm not mistaken, there are some states in which the the governor actually has the power to appoint um, election officials with enormous power, like in Pennsylvania, uh, where I believe the governor appoints the the top election official, the Secretary of State, um, who can decide how elections are conducted. Yes. And again, um, sometimes I say our ship of state was designed in 1789. And most ships of that age are a little leaky after a few centuries. So every state has different election laws, has different, some of them even have different dates as to when the state legislators take office, right? So you have this incredibly complicated patchwork of legislation. Um, And again, the Council for National Policy has been studying all of this and doing very targeted polling by a man named George Barna, 
um, and, and figuring out exactly where they want to go tweak which state, which unit of government. They also have something called the precinct strategy, which was formulated in Arizona um, by a military veteran. And what they do is set out to identify moderate Republicans who will work with Democrats and purge them from the party leadership in on a precinct level and replace them with, with MAGA Republicans. So Steve Bannon has had the creator of this project, Dan Schultz, on his War Room podcast several times. He's endorsed this project. Donald Trump has written a letter in support of the precinct strategy. Uh, so really, the first victim of this whole campaign has been the traditional Republican Party. We had Pat Ryan on who talked about the guardrails of democracy coming back to check these extremist impulses. Uh, he, of course, won the special election in the New York 19th uh, against the prognostications of the pollsters. And the, the theory is that, you know, there is some resilience in our in our democracy that we sometimes don't see when the extremists go too far. Uh, do you think his election is a is a portent or an anomaly? Well, we have so many wild cards coming into the scene right now. And one of them was the Dobbs ruling of the Supreme Court. So when they overturned Roe versus Wade and gave the states power over abortion, it did prompt a reaction among women, especially those in the age group who were most affected. So what you're seeing is a real spike in voter registration among these these women under 35. And the polling that I'm seeing says that in the past, these new newly registered women used to, to uh, rate five points in favor of the Democrats, and now it's 20. So you're going to have this wave of women who were very significant in the Kansas election around abortion last last month. And I believe that they were also a factor in New York 19, as well as the Alaska primary, right? So again, you have the Council for National Policy and their organizations like the Family Research Council and Susan B. Anthony pushing people to vote against abortion for decades, and those voters may be tapped out. The question is whether this wave of voters who now come into the scene opposing these draconian laws on abortion that are truly horrific, whether whether they are going to be enough of a difference. And the early suggestions, such as New York, Alaska, and Kansas, is that Yes, maybe, because those are three very different states, right? Yeah. For the CNP and the others whose interests are economically driven but are, are cynically using the, the culture war foot soldiers to take over legislatures, is this potentially a case of the dog catching the car? Do you see any any reservations or second thoughts 
amongst the folks that you research about this, as you put it, unholy alliance with the culture warriors? Well, I will say that the Council for National Policy had people who were heavily involved in organizing the January 6th protest. Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA publicized it and his organization sent buses of participants. Ginny Thomas, who is a a member, um, publicized it in advance. Jenny Beth Martin from Tea Party Patriots was present with Simone Gold, a doctor who has been the point person for their COVID disinformation campaign. And she was present in the rotunda and is currently in federal prison as a result. So they were obviously planning to organize something. This is my opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I don't, I don't think they meant for the invasion to be that violent. I don't think they meant for people to get killed. I, I think that it's quite possible that these uh, aligned forces who are connected to QAnon and some of the Pentecostal, more fringe churches and the militias came into the event and perhaps took it over. I'm, I would bet good money that uh, the Council for National Policy did not want Mike Pence to be hung, for example. He's now a dues-paying member, so that wouldn't make sense. But the problem is that once you align yourself and agitate a mob, you don't always control it. I guess that's my larger point is the mob getting out of control. And I don't just mean the literal January 6th mob. I mean the the metaphorical mobs in these state legislatures that are passing these insane uh, abortion restrictions. I'm betting the CNP didn't see that coming, or if they did, they certainly didn't anticipate the backlash that they're about to receive. I don't think they anticipated the backlash. When you create an information silo with your own media, you do tend to respond to your own echo chamber. But I will say that I've researched these groups and Tony Perkins, who is the former president of the Council for National Policy and has headed the Family Research Council for a long time, um, published you know, a, a blog post against the morning after pill. And that isn't even an abortion. That is something that prevents conception. So if he's condemning that, then that's already a very extreme position, right? I mean, you know, that, that, that's, again, if he's against something that's not even an abortion. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that they are not highly informed about the medical dimensions of abortion policy. And that characteristic is shared by some of these legislators who are now, you know, appearing in video saying, oh, I didn't realize that I was condemning a woman with ectopic pregnancy to death, right? Well, you didn't do any homework. You didn't talk to any doctors, (laughs) you know, and you have to live with what you've, you've done because there will be women who will be holding you accountable for this legislation. Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics 
that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Long term, it seems like this strategy of mobilizing the religious right is it's doomed to fail if you assume that our democratic instincts prevail and that the people who get the most votes win. Are the leaders in the CMP looking to that future or are they imagining one in which our democratic systems don't prevail and they still retain power? Well, Ken, that question is based on a false premise. As Hillary Clinton's candidacy proved, our political system is not governed by the most votes. It's not democratic. You can get the most votes and still lose if you have people who really know how to manipulate the Electoral College, which these people do, right? That, that's what I want you to speak to. The real threat isn't uh, the, the conversion of a large section of the public to this way of thinking. It's the radicalization of an intent enough minority that will take over the democratic process. The battle's being fought on many different fronts right now. And, you know, sometimes I, in my mind, I try to imagine, you know, like a military map of what this conflict looks like. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to call it an early stage of a civil war. It's becoming more violent. But again, the different fronts are not just the electoral fronts. If you take control of state legislatures and other institutions on a state level, you can gerrymander your way into a majority when you have a minority vote. And that's going on in Texas. That's going on in various other states, right? So the gerrymandering has been a very powerful instrument for them, and, and it has nothing to do with democracy. It's all manipulation. Another plan that they've been announcing is that if they have enough states and they're almost there, they're almost there, they can have a constitutional convention and change the U.S. Constitution to their liking, right? That has nothing to do with democracy because it's not based on population. So what we have is a national divide where we have heavily democratic population centers on the coasts and in major cities right? What you have are these peninsulas and islands of blue in a sea of red. 
And because the framers of our government in the 18th century awarded representation to landmass to the disadvantage of people, <laughs> they can manipulate these structures. And so that's why to respond to this effectively, you need people running for office who are committed to the democratic process. And I'm talking about everything from school board to precinct chairman to state legislature, all those boring offices that most people don't want to attend to. And most people don't want to pay attention to them or invest in them because the people on the coast and the cities like the glamour of the presidential contests and the Senate. So they've neglected their state legislatures and allowed these radical right Republicans to just railroad their way in to power. So, um, yeah, that's how I see it. If you wanted more democratic representation, the Council for National Policy and their supporters understand they've lost the demographics of the United States. The United States is becoming more tolerant of LGBT people. It is becoming younger. It is becoming more racially, ethnically, and religiously mixed. And the vast majority of Americans are fine with that. So they're in a race against time. And it really goes up until November, the midterms, right? If they don't win the, the, the House of Representatives and the targeted state legislatures, their project is in danger of dying. That's why they're going for broke right now. Say more about that. Why isn't there... Um... Like, why does it fail after this election? Don't they have plenty of inertia to carry on? I mean, they've lost past elections and survived and come out stronger. What is so critical about this one? Oh, uh, the prosecutions. Because we have the wheels of justice turning, however slowly, but they are turning. So you have the Council for National Policies election law expert, Cleta Mitchell, heavily involved in Donald Trump's efforts to steal the election back. Um, you've got various other individuals who are high-ranking Council for National Policy members who are implicated in various ways. So the scenario is that if the Democrats hold the House of Representatives and the Senate, they pass a lot of legislation that supports the Biden administration and positions the Democrats for 2024. And they proceed with the January 6th committee and the investigations, which may well lead to prosecutions. If they lose the House of Representatives, you flip it. And the Republicans have already said that if they take the House of Representatives, they're going to impeach Biden and Kamala Harris. And it will be a nonsense impeachment, but it will, you know, grab all the airtime and uh, really halt the budgetary process and other things that help the government to function on behalf of the citizens. Uh, if they take the House and the Senate, which is not as likely, um, they can prevent Biden from appointing more federal judges. And they can continue to appoint people like Judge Aline Cannon in Florida, who is Trump's own personal judge, who basically lets him write the rulings, right? We can have the rest of the federal judiciary populated with people like this. So, Ken, the premise of, of American government is checks and balances based on the three branches of government. 
the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. Trump already made big inroads into stacking the federal judiciary with his people, as illustrated in Florida. If they win Congress, they hold the legislative branch. And if they win in 2024 through whatever means, they'll hold all three. And at that point, in terms of democracy, it's game over. Well, it, it, I mean, that's bad enough, but it, the way you describe it seems almost anarchic. You're talking about a party that is, is going to hold hearings and run an impeachment scam in total defiance of any legal or institutional norms. And that surely, that state of anarchy and government and disarray surely can't be what the um, the establishment figures at the CNP want. So paint for us <laughs> the picture of what happens in 10 years if if they get their way or if they lose control of, of these various mobs, the the ones with actual pitchforks and then the, the legislative mob that uh, doesn't care about governing. What's the future look like? Well, I, I don't know that it would look like anarchy. I have written two previous books about the resistance in Nazi-era Berlin and in occupied France. And I think that when you go to an authoritarian model, you increase the police and intelligence and military forces and limit freedom of expression, freedom of the press, uh, basically hogtie your, your political opposition. So you don't have anarchy, you have autocracy. And in the, the Orwellian sense, in the same way, Second Amendment freedom means you can uh, a mentally unstable person can take an AR-15 and kill elementary school children. You know that's called freedom. Uh, they'll they'll say that economic freedom is closing public schools and eliminating public health programs. Right? You know, some economists call it the Brazilianization of America, where you have a few incredibly wealthy oligarchs who control the lives of the little people who serve them. And Ken, I'm afraid you and I would be the little people. Yeah. Um, well, give us some hope to close us out here. I mean, I, I'm a, an eternal optimist and I believe elections matter, even though we have anti-democratic institutions and, and biases built into our system. Uh, what can we do between now and November and beyond that, uh, 2024, to begin to right the ship? Oh, uh, there's a, there is hope. There's more hope right now than, than there was even a few months ago. Um, because the numbers on the midterm races were very much stacked in the Republicans' favor, even as of the early summer. But the January 6th committee has made a dent. There are a lot of people who are traditional Republicans who say, wait a minute, I'm for law and order and January 6th did not represent my concept of law and order. You know, you don't attack policemen, right? So that has had an effect. I believe that the documents that Donald Trump held at Mar-a-Lago and the revelations that are continuing to come out about those will affect others. So, for example, I would guess 
that military veterans would look at his behavior with classified documents and say, that's not okay. That's not the the behavior we would expect from our commander in chief. You have the voting blocks of women. So already you have a number of races. Um, and if anybody wants to follow these closely, you can look at uh, Larry Sabato's um, website at the University of Virginia, the Crystal Ball, where various races are moving from toss-up to lean democratic. In terms of what people can do, uh, people who are wanting to defend democracy need to get out of their own bubbles. And by that, I mean that if they're hyper-local and they're on the East Coast or the West Coast or a big city, they need to look beyond their own environment to these states and these congressional districts and these state legislatures where a lot of the game will be determined. So, you know, I laugh because I live in New York City, which is going to vote Democratic no matter what, and people pour money into various campaigns. And it's like, well, you know, Coles to Newcastle, uh, people should be looking at these very good organizations that are analyzing close races in critical states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, and putting their efforts and their support to races that are going to be definitive according to the way the game is defined now. You know, get rid of the wishful thinking already. And this is a moment when Americans have a chance to defend democracy without going to war for it, you know, which conflict is horrible. Physical violence is horrible. We can solve this at the at the voting booths if we so choose. Couldn't agree more, as always. And it's amazing talking to you. Thanks for sharing your insights. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Hopefully it doesn't take another year. Well, uh, it's going to be an exciting fall. So stay tuned. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Anne. Thanks. Thanks again to Anne for joining me. If you haven't already, check out her book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. The link is in the show description. You can also find her on Twitter at ANelsonA. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, 
and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.